This is a podcast slidecast for the AP European History students at Bozeman High School. My name is Dave Butt. Students, this podcast slidecast is going to look at the early modern society, um, but basically life in the 16th and 17th centuries. Uh, what we're going to be looking at here, this will be uh, a good supplement for chapter 15, sections 4 and 5 inside of McKay, Hill, and Buckler. Um, some of the essential questions that we're going to be looking at today uh, what are the preoccupations and assumptions of any age? How do those express themselves in political, social, and economic movements? And then how do the art and literature of a time express its fundamental values? We'll be looking at some Baroque art, uh, art and then also look at some of the Jacobian and Elizabethan literature to sort of try and figure out what that says about the uh, early modern society or life in the 16th and 17th centuries. Um, so to begin with, what is life like for the average person in 16th, 17th um, century Europe? Well, it kind of depends, first of all, on where you live. Uh, and you want to keep in mind that you've got to compare this to life in the Middle Ages. Uh, you know, there's the idea of that you're going to see a rise and increase of certain aspects of life, but at other times you're going to see um, still somewhat the, the same draconian measures that you're going to see inside the Middle Ages. But... Again, it depends on your situation, like where you live. Um, your social hierarchy is going to be dependent on the the area that you live in. If you live in the countryside, um, it's going to be the manorial lords. You're going to be at the top of the social ladders. Uh, the peasants are going to constitute the largest percentage of the rural population. Um, most of the peasants are going to be working on land that are going to be that it's owned, actually owned by the actual lord. Um, they're going to be using common land for their farming, for their herding. Um, we talked a little bit about inside the commercial revolution what happens to common land as uh, the nobles start to enclose it and try to increase their own production values. Um, that common land that normal everyday peasants are going to be using is going to be sort of shut off from them. Um, and also in the countryside, you're going to also have a fairly large population of landless workers um, who are really going to be earning like the lowest possible wages. And these are people that aren't going to have a section of a noble's farm to farm or to work. Um, these are the people that are just going to be migrant workers almost that move from place to place to help try and work as much as they can. Um, in towns, things are going to be just slightly different. Um, in towns particularly, like we mentioned inside the commercial revolution, um, the merchants, the bourgeoisie of this time period are becoming the most, are becoming the wealthiest and the most powerful. Um, they're going to be elected to public office because of their wealth, or not elected, but they're going to be appointed to public office because of the, the power and wealth that they have. The social status, the bourgeoisie social status is going to be increasing. Um, but also inside the towns, you're going to have artisans uh, and skilled craftsmen such as weavers, blacksmiths, carpenters, masons. Um, these people are often belong to guilds, though, and so that's important to remember that the guilds themselves offer a structure of work. Um, the guilds, as, as we see inside of the commercial revolution, uh, the guilds themselves had to combat with the sort of price increases, um, and so you're going to see a, a, a decrease in the amount of people that can actually join guilds to try and hold on to the monopoly as much as possible. Um, we saw inside the commercial revolution this idea of the putting out industry. If you have a guild of weavers, and now all of a sudden that uh, now all of a sudden because of the commercial revolution, the enclosure movements in England in particular, um, you have common people that aren't members of the guild producing cloth for market. Uh, that's a huge uh, that's a huge component of the guild sort of losing their own power. Um, but artisans, we'll mention uh, later on, they are going to still be very much a part of what happens inside of the, the cities. They're still going to be influential inside of society. They're still going to hold a certain rank. Uh, we'll talk about some of those guys when we get to the Baroque art. art. 
Um, the number one thing to remember is education or wealth become the means of moving up the social ladder. So education or wealth, depending on where you are, um, moving up the social ladder. But that really only applies to a very fortunate few. If you can manage to actually get some wealth, if you remember that bourgeoisie, that rising merchant class, then you can probably move up the move up the ladder as we kind of discussed already, where you have people actually moving up the ladder because they are members of that rising merchant class. Um, some of the de uh, some of the demography of the what happens in the 16th and 17th century, um, we've kind of mentioned the law the the major population growth um, in this long 16th century, uh, which is basically between as historians call it between 1450 and 1650. Um, they consider that to be the long 16th century. Uh, you're going to see a pretty solid increase in population during that time period. Um, it, the population growth is going to level by about 1650 until about 1750 when thanks to the agricultural revolution it's going to start to increase. But from about 1450 to about 1650 we see a pretty steady um, increase of population. Of course you've got to keep in mind that that's uh, an increase in the population after the things like the Hundred Years War, the Black Death, uh, pretty massive diseases and famine uh, that we saw inside the Middle Ages. So naturally, the, the those population numbers are going to start to increase. Um, but the cities is where you're going to see the population growth uh, is going to be a lot larger than in the countryside. And that's thanks in large part, again, to that bourgeoisie, that rising merchant class, um, which is then thanks in large part to the uh, exploration expansion that we see inside of Europe during that time period as well. But... Even though you're going to see an increase in the number of people, and even though you're going to see an increase in the, the larger city, or the, the cities themselves are going to increase, um, it's still very much patriarchal families. Uh, you can see that on the, on the slide. The, the picture on the right-hand side um, is a, a family who, the baby is probably sitting far too close to the fire. Um, but it is very much patriarchal, which means, again, that the male is in charge, the female is subject to the male, uh, or the husband's in charge and the wife is subject to the, to the male, and it's her responsibility to sort of raise the children and um, get some sort of uh, uh, social vitality or vitality inside of the family life. Um, you can read a little bit more about that in your book and underneath the status of women. Uh, to give you some examples, um, the involvement of women inside of the social and public affairs are very inappropriate because it is going to distract from their primary responsibility, which is of the household. Um, that's not to say that all women are going to do that, but it's enough to say that the majority, for sure, a uh, very small percentage of the women are going to be able to break away from that mold. Um, what we're also going to start to see inside of this is a somewhat of a rise in life expectancy, but you can see for, for men on the slide here, it's about 27 years. For women, it's about 25. So life, life is still short for these people, for the good, for the good average and that's, again, his average lifespan. Obviously, the people have lived longer than that. People live uh, very much shorter than that. But for the average person, you know, 27, 25 uh, is the, the peak of your age, if you will. So that's a fairly short lifespan that you have to get a lot accomplished in. Um, some of the other things inside of the life inside of the social, or life in the 16th and 17th centuries uh, is this idea that, um, again, that women are subject to men, but... At the same time, you see the differences inside of the Catholicism and Protestant faith. Um, Protestants are going to say, are going to recognize the, the the fact that divorce and remarriage is a mutual right um, and can be achieved through various reasons, including adultery, um, 
impotence. Uh, you know, Protestants are going to think that divorce is something that that should be used if necessary, whereas Catholics think that it's a, a sacramental union. Um, it's one of the seven sacraments, marriages, and so if you break that, then you're you're breaking the seven one of the seven sacraments, which means you're not even Catholic. Um, so therefore. You're going to see this difference in the in the, the the difference in religion is still a huge part of this. We talked about the religious wars um, that's still going on inside of Europe. You have to keep in mind that all the context that we're dealing with here fits underneath the major religious wars um, that we're going to that that we've talked about it as well. Um, some of the other things to look at uh, what this is. One of the one of the ways that this is going to manifest itself, this idea of women sort of being subjective to men, um, and one of the, the the sort of oddities of European history is this is the witch hunts um, from about fourteen hundred to about seventeen hundred. So really, about this entire time period that we're talking about, um, the witch hunts are incredibly popular inside of European history you know, or in, inside of European society and incredibly deadly. You can see the numbers there. 70,000 to 100,000 killed in, then in between 1400 and 1700. Um, that's a pretty massive amount of people. And historians and anthropologists have debated for years as to what, you know, how this came about, what the causes of this were, um, what the results of this were, and really, you know, trying to figure out what exactly caused this. I mean, this is Mass hysteria, it seems. Mass hysteria, it seems, um, that is is devastating Europe, popular, the devastating the devastating people inside of Europe, devastating families. Um, so, what are some of the causes of witch hunts? One is going to be this popular belief in magic. Uh, cunning folk uh, had always been common in Europe, um, common in European villages. They played a positive role, helping villagers deal with tragedies such as plagues, famine, physical disabilities, and impotence. Um, claims to power often by the elderly or impoverished, and especially women. Uh, so this idea of this cunning folk, uh, this idea that they might be possibly witches, um, but they do play a positive role in helping in helping villages and helping families. Um, this idea is is still prevalent. So people across society during this time period believe in magic, believe in the, the ability of one particular person to heal other people for some reason or to cause devastation upon people for some reason. Um, the Catholic Church is going to claim that the powers are either the God or the devil um, and is going to use witch hunts to control, to take to gain control over village life and rural areas. Now the Catholic Church is trying to, again, sort of reclaim its, uh, or ensure its, ensure its herd, if you will, of the the prominence and the importance of the Catholic Church, and so they're going to use this idea of the witch hunts to sort of um, claim that these powers, this these cunning people or this magic, either came from God or the devil. And to figure that out, you have to stand trial, and you have to use hunts to figure out who the witches are, um, and to basically try and determine who or what needs to be burned. Um, the Catholic Church again will use this as a tool of control. Women are, inside of the witch hunts, women are going to be seen as the weaker vessels um, and thus more prone to temptation. Um, and women themselves are going to constitute about 80% of the victims inside of the witch hunts. So that's a fair portion of the actual uh, female population being um, targeted and outnumbered. Most of these people, most are going to be between the age of 45 and 60, um, going to be unmarried. Um, we'll have a debate on whether or not uh, the witch hunts were actually misogynistic. Uh, or the idea of the hatred of women, it probably or may have played a role in a, um, 
in this, because remember, the whole society is patriarchal, which means the, the husband or the male is in charge. Um, and so this idea of being misogynistic could possibly have been a, a cause for that, but we'll see what happens with the debate. Um, most midwives are going to be women. And so what you're going to find is that if babies die in childbirth, midwives will often be blamed and will often be targeted as witches uh, to get sort of revenge. So we're starting to see one of the reasons is sort of this um, idea that, again, if women are the weaker vessel and you're trying to get rid of someone for political gain or social gain, um, if they have a, if it is a midwife and your child has died because of this midwife's hand, perhaps you want to seek revenge. Um, and so that's what another reason as to why they might be targeted. And the major, the last major cause of this witch hunts um, is the religious wars, the division uh, that we see inside of Europe at the time period. Um, and witches offer a scapegoat, and you know that again. Like I just, like was mentioned earlier, leaders are trying to try and gain some loyalty to their people uh, by appearing to protect them. You know, leaders may claim if there's a, uh, a threat to their own power, they're going to claim, oftentimes they'll claim that that person or someone that person knows or is related to is a witch, and thereby destroying that person. Um, it's, it's a very odd sort of period in time in history. Uh, your picture on the right-hand side is from, the, is from Confessions. These are actually trials. This isn't just mobs of people going around and, and burning anybody that they could possibly find. Uh, they actually stand trials. These witches actually do stand trials and um, are condemned to death, usually by burning. The picture on the slide is by hanging, but any means will work. Um, burning, they think, is most of the time a good way to make the, make the devil, if you will, escape from the body. Um, but these are trials. They are. And, they, and most of the times you're going to see people standing trial. There are a few cases where it is a mob of people just going around and killing anyone that they think to be a witch. Um, but in reality, they are a form of control, like I already mentioned, through the Catholic Church or through leaders that are fighting these religious wars. So what brings about the end of the witch hunts? Um, the major thing is the scientific revolution of the 16th and 17th century. Uh, as sort of science and technology and as sort of ideas of how the world work come into play, um, people are going to start to realize that, particularly the, the popular belief in magic, doesn't necessarily hold true. There are reasons, there's explanations. Um, people are given reasons as to why things work or why things don't work. Um, not only that, but if you consider the fact that, you know, Lots of times these cunning people or this belief in magic is supposed to help people with uh, tragedies, plagues, famine, diseases, the death. Um, the advances of medicine and the advent of insurance companies are going to be able to take, that allows people to take better care of themselves. So you're going to have less disease, you're going to have less famine inside of Europe during the time period as well. Um, and so by the end of, you know, by the end of the 17th century, we rarely see rich witch trials. Um, in addition to that, uh, during this entire witch hunts, trials become chaotic. Um, you, if you accuse someone of witchcraft, once you stand trial with that person, you could easily become accused of witchcraft yourself, um, and then be condemned to witchcraft, even though you have accused someone. The reason that people, lots of people won't do it is because if you're using it for some sort of political gain, um, if you're using that witch trial for some sort of political gain, the threat to your own livelihood is usually enough to make people stop actually, uh, causing these witch, or, you know, wanting these witch um, craft trials. Um, also, the Protestant Reformation is going to emphasize uh, the the idea that God is the only spiritual force in the universe. Um, so, just bear that in mind that you still see this Protestant Reformation coming into play. Um, 
And then some of the literature is going to imply that uh, people had a large degree of control over their own lives and did not need to rely on superstition. So you're going to see literature reflecting this, the tempo of the day. Um, literature itself is going to say, you know, people have control over their own lives um, and therefore they're not going to have to rely as much on superstition. Um, to give you an idea, uh, the, the fact that, you know, these witch hunts, they die down in the 16th and 17th centuries because they're, because in large part to the scientific revolution, but they're not out completely. In fact, there's a woman by the name of Helen Duncan who in 1944 is actually um, called to court inside of Great Britain. Uh, she's a clairvoyant, and she is sentenced to jail uh, because they're worried that her clairvoyancy will lead to the attack or will lead to the, the discovery of the D-Day plans, um, which is still uh, are fascinating to a lot of people, uh, even to today. So it's kind of an interesting topic, and we'll see whether or not they were misogynistic uh, as we go through the debate. So let's move on to a little bit of art and literature here. Um, one of the things to remember is always, always think about art and literature as it shapes and how it influences and how it impacts and how it reflects society as a whole. Um, so the art and literature of the day, one guy in particular, or there's going to be a couple major guys that we need to remember. The first one is Michael D. Montague. Uh, he is going to be the foremost skeptic of his day. Uh, and what skepticism is, is this doubt that true knowledge can actually be attained at all, um, that total certainty basically is not possible. So you cannot be ever certain that anything is ever right, which means that if you're not certain, that if you can't be certain that everything, that anything is right, then everything has to be questioned, and everything needs to be at least tolerated until proven otherwise. So this idea is going to be huge when you start to think about uh, the idea of acceptance of different religions. Um, he is definitely ahead of his time, and he's never going to be understood by the people of his own day. Uh, that's one thing to remember, is that he just won't ever, like, his his um, his own time, the 17th century, basically few people are actually going to agree with him. Um, or, I'm sorry, the, the, throughout the 17th century, no one's going to really agree with his ideas, but he is the foremost of the skeptics. Um, he's going to develop, in particular, one form that I'm sure everyone is happy to know. He develops the essay form. Yay, the essay form. Um, it's going to be a new literary genre. And he basically says that uh, he's a humanist, for sure, and he believes that the object uh, in life is to know oneself and to, to self-knowledge, uh, or you know, to, to search for knowledge yourself. Um, and that self-knowledge is going to teach men and women how to live in accordance with nature and God. Um, he is, the, this idea of the essay is a way to test his theories or to test one's theories uh, and to make sure that you actually know what's kind of going on. Um, or to, to make sure that, like, to make sure that your theories themselves or your ideas are actually put to the test and being able to, to sort of figure out exactly what uh, the world holds. The important thing to remember about is this idea that skepticism, that nothing at all can be known for sure. Um, and I like his quote, I listen with attention to the judgment of all men, but so far as I can remember, I have followed none but my own. Though I see little value upon my own opinion, I set no more the opinions of others. So what he's saying here basically is that like, you know, I, he recognizes the idea that everyone else has their opinions, uh, but he's not going to set his own upon, his, his above anyone else's, um, and no one else is above his own either. So he's going to stand up for what he believes in, uh, but he's also going to listen to the other people around him. So that's Michael de Montaigne, um, important guy to remember as far as skepticism goes.
Moving on a little bit to Elizabeth and Jacobin literature. Um, this is, the literature is thus named for Elizabeth I and her successor James I as well. Um, James I is going to rule from 1603 to 1625, um, and that's right after Elizabeth's rule. Um, this is known as the Golden Age of English Literature. And this is where we see Shakespeare, the, the bard himself, Billy Boy. Um, he is, Shakespeare is a Renaissance man. He's, he has a deep appreciation for classical culture, individualism, and humanism. Um, and so what we see is this, this idea that the Renaissance individual is carrying through society. Um, Shakespeare is the Renaissance man, is the epitome of the Renaissance man. Um, he's also going to be very nationalistic in his writing. Uh, lots of his plays, particularly the history plays, Richard II, Richard III, Henry IV, um, those are really, really nationalistic. And they really deal a lot with, uh, they're written right after the defeat of the Spanish Armada. And it's really going to lay sort of the foundations for what it is to be known as the English consciousness, um, to the idea of what it is to be English and have a national consciousness. But not only that, he's going to understand human problems better than probably anybody else can. Uh, we talked a little bit about this in class, and uh, you know the idea that Shakespeare himself is knows how to address humans, knows how to deal with humans, and knows how to deal with human problems. Um, that's why a lot of people, that's why many people think he's probably the, one of the greatest writers of all time, or he is one of the greatest writers of all time. Um, he understands the human problems. He understands uh, the basically the the enormous range of human problems that can exist in any one person. Uh, the other major sort of work that's going to come out of the golden age of English literature is going to be the is going to be the King James Bible. Um, in 1611, there's going to be a committee of scholars who's actually King James is going to organize and say basically rewrite the Bible or uh, you know not rewrite the Bible but at least address it better in in, in the English of the day. Um, this cause for you know the publishers or this cause for the new Bible, the King James version of the Bible. Is going to be brought about by Puritans um, who are trying to get uh, lay people, common people, to actually read the scripture for themselves. So we've seen this thing before. Uh, we've seen these ideas before where this scripture, you know, reading the scripture for yourself is going to be a huge component of the Anglican and the Puritan church. Um, so this encouragement of people, lay people, to read the scripture is going to be a major influence upon the, the reason the King James Bible is written. One of the lasting impacts of the King James Bible is that most of the settlers that come to North America carry the King James Bible and know it very, very well. Um, it is one of the major sort of moral foundations that you're going to see that's going to help build um, the American society, in fact. Um, the Baroque period. We'll move on to a little bit of the art and uh, music of the day. Uh, the Baroque period. It's going to get its start in the um, Catholic Reformation. And what we actually see is it basically is going to try and teach people in a concrete and emotional way uh, and to demonstrate the glory and power of the Catholic Church. Um, it's the, the purpose of it is to teach people. The reason behind it is to demonstrate the glory and power of the Catholic Church. Um, it's going to, you know, eventually it's going to be, it is encouraged by the papacy. It's encouraged by the Jesuits. Um, it's going to be prominent in Flanders, uh, Austria, southern Germany, Poland, very high speaking or uh, very tightly controlled uh, Catholic areas. Uh, it's later going to spread into, into um, a Protestant countries such as the Netherlands and Northern Germany and England. Um, but in the majority of the time, it's going to be based predominantly in the Catholic countries of the day. Um, 
it's going to seek to overwhelm the viewer, and it's going to emphasize grandeur, emotion, movement, spaciousness, all, and, and unity surrounding a central theme. Um, you can see a couple of the images on the right here, this grandeur, this spaciousness, um, this sort of trying to develop emotion as much as possible. Um, in particular, you can see that through the architecture and sculpture, as well as the paintings. We'll look at some of the paintings here in a second. Uh, but the one thing I'll mention here is Bernini, who is going to basically per, uh, personify Baroque architecture and sculpture. Um, both of the images you see on the right-hand side, uh, the colonnade of for the piazza in front of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. Uh, it's probably his greatest architectural movement. Um, and you can see just the grandeur that Baroque architecture tries to invoke. I mean, these, these are massive structures um, that try as best as they can to sort of demonstrate the power of the Catholic Church. He's also going to do, he's also going to sculpt the canopy over the high altar at St. Peter's Cathedral, and he's also going to um, sculpt the altarpiece, uh, which is the Ecstasy of St. Teresa, uh, which if you look at is the upper picture of this, and um, the emotion that you can probably, that hopefully you can see from there, uh, just the style, the style of it, and what appears to be almost like a stature, almost like a picture of people in movement. Um, the emotion, the movement, the grandeur of that is unparalleled as far as art is concerned later on. Um, the one thing about Baroque period art and architecture uh, is that for quite a few centuries it's going to be regarded as sort of the grotesque offspring of Renaissance art. Um, but in reality, it's, you know, most of the specialists now agree that it's going to be actually one of the higher points of the history of the Western culture. Um, a lot of people would, for, for quite some time, consider it to be um, sort of overblown and unbalanced in style, whereas, you know, the Renaissance art was always balanced. It was always, it always had equal balance and for shading, light. Most people consider the Baroque period to be fairly... Um, unbalanced in its art and architecture. We'll see some of that. You can see, kind of see some of that in the uh, in the sculptures as well. Uh, very much what seems to be unbalanced, but really actually is one of the higher points in Western culture for sure. Okay, taking a look at some of the art of the Baroque period. Um, one of the first people we're going to talk about is Garavaggio. Um, he is going to be used... Uh, you know, some of the painting, some of the characteristics of the Baroque painting is going to be expressed through Gary Vario's um, paintings. It's going to stress the characteristics of the Baroque painting are broad areas of light and shadow. You can kind of see that on both of these images up here. Um, color was an important element uh, as, a plea, as applied to the senses and more true to nature. Um, it's not going to be concerned with the overall clarity of detail as with the overall dynamic effect. So you're not looking at the detail of this time period, but you're looking at the overall dynamic effect. Um, it's also going to be designed to give a synopsis personal, uh, a spontaneous personal experience. Um, so what that basically means is that they're going to try and connect with the actual viewer of the art as much as possible. Um, you're going to see this in the paintings themselves. Um, Gaverio is a Roman painter, um, probably the first important painter of the Baroque era. Uh, you can see that he uses very, very high emotional scenes. Uh, uses sharp contrast to the dark and light. You can see how that's a characteristic of Baroque painting. Um, and he's also going to, uh, he's actually actually going to be criticized for using some ordinary people as models in his depiction of biblical scenes. Um, people think that some of his depictions, uh, depictions of biblical scenes should be used or should not have used uh, ordinary people in it. 
Um, you can see uh, both the paintings on the left and the right here, um, the entombment of Christ and then the death of the Virgin, both of which uh, are very highly emotional, highly dramatic scenes. Um, you can see the dark and light contrast between these two. Um, you can also see the color element itself is going to apply to the senses as much as possible. The red, the, the blues, um, the, the, the almost seemingly all red or white of the, the, the death of the Virgin. And that is appealing to some, some of the senses that he is trying to actually achieve, um, to actually appeal to the, to the musician or to the uh, viewer of the day. The, probably the premier is going to be Peter Paul Rubens. He's going to be a Flemish painter. Um, and he's going to be, there's a great picture of his work called The Horrors of War in your book. Uh, that's also up here on the, on the screen. Um, and you can also see the major characteristics of Baroque painting. Um, broad areas of light and shadow rather than linear arrangements of the High Renaissance. So again, you don't have these linear arrangements of the High Renaissance. You have these broad areas of light and shadow. Um, you're also going to see inside of Rubens that the emphasis of color and sensuality, uh, animated figures and melodramatic contrasts. So this, this is definitely, the Horrors of War definitely shows you animated figures. Um, it looks like that's a picture almost caught in movement. Um, you're also going to see, if you look at more of Rubens' work, you'll see that nearly half of his work is going to deal with Christian subjects, uh, which shows that this, that Christianity is still very much an influence in society. Um, and he's also going to be noticed for what noticed or known for his central nudes as Roman goddesses, water nymphs, um, and saints and angels. Uh, you can see that on the painting up uh, on the screen as well. A uh, little analysis of that painting on the screen is given to you in your book, and I just want to repeat that a little bit. Um, in this painting of here, the horrors of war, you see the you see Venus trying to restrain Mars. Is the guy holding the the, the torch? Um, Mars is followed by disease and famine. Uh, and the shrieking lady in black on the left-hand side is basically, it's supposed to represent Europe. And so uh, this should give you a pretty good in indication of what painters are feeling like during this day and age. Um, pretty much war-ridden war society, and um, Rubin is going to be one of the paramount painters that's, that is suggesting uh, that unless we can hold back war, you're going to get these famine, this disease, and everything else that's associated with the god of war, Mars, uh, that's going to in, basically come in and disrupt the life and sanity of Europe again. Uh, this is a reflection of the of the society of the day, right? We, we are dealing with um, massive religious wars throughout this time period, uh, and this is a reflection of how people try to deal with that as much as possible. And then Bach. Uh, as far as the music is concerned, um, Johann Sebastian Bach is really uh, the paramount of Baroque, uh, Baroque music. Um, that's going to be... The, the major issue is that Baroque music is not going to come into its being until almost about a century after Baroque painting. Uh, you can see Baroque's dates up there, um, whereas Rebelo was painting in... Uh, 1604, 1605, somewhere right around the turn of the 16th, right around the turn of the um, 15th to 16th to 17th century, um, whereas Bach himself is going to be working much, almost about a century later. Um, but you can still see this combination of Baroque spirit of invention, tension, and emotion. Um, the emotion of the day is still there for Bach, and we'll talk about why that is when we get into there. Um, and like many of the artists of Baroque period, he's not going to be appreciated in his own time, um, and it's not going to be until later or the early part of the 19th century that he's actually going to be uh, that his reputation is actually going to grow. You can see on the right hand side here um, just sort of the chaos almost that you might see instead of a Bach piece. We'll listen to a little Bach music in class as well, um, and so 
Bear that in mind that this music, the paintings, the architecture, the literature of the day represents a very chaotic, very uh, nervous society. It's um, a constant state of warfare and it's represented and reflected inside of the music, literature, and art of the day. So that essential question then it becomes a paramount. What are the preoccupations and assumptions of any age? Um, and how do those express themselves in political, social, and economic movements? Uh, that has to deal with, if you think about the uh, preoccupations or the the, the, the the preoccupations of patriarchal families and how that move, manifests itself into things like the witch hunts um, and then the how do art and literature of the time express the fundamental values uh, again give, dealing with Baroque art and literature and music and how that expresses the, the, the chaotic values the chaotic sense of the world that many of these people are actually experiencing so that is uh, the modern the early modern society um, thank you for listening hope to see you again